you have your Bible or your Bible app, Luke chapter 4, if you would, please. We're coming to the end of our series on emotional, healthy spirituality um, today and next week. And um, I would be remiss, I believe, if we didn't talk about this subject today, um, about loss and grief and the effect it has on all of us. And I want to use maybe a, not a typical passage, but Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, just the context. Jesus is teaching as he's been going around. It says this, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So he's in his hometown. It was his custom when he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. This is verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is a remarkable claim Jesus is making. And what I just really want to point out this morning in the context of where we are to take this text and jump into, what does it have to do with grief and loss? Well, I want to try to point that out. Number one in verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him because he is anointed. There is this anointing that happens. You're anointed king in the Old Testament. You're anointed a prophet. You are anointed. You are set aside, in other words. You are made holy. It is this connection that Jesus is making to his deity, that he is, in fact, king. That he is, in other words, has this authority, this authority that he has been given. He's not your best buddy your bestest friend, your whatever, BFF, all those things. He is far more than that. He is declaring himself king over all of life. Yours, mine, everything. And what that allows him to do is in between verses 18, and and if you go down to verse 19 to proclaim the year of our Lord, it's like a gospel sandwich, if you will, right? So here Jesus is at the beginning I have this authority because I've been anointed. And at the end of it, it ends with God's blessing and favor. But in the middle is where we do life. And what do you find in the middle? Jesus came to proclaim the gospel and give liberty or freedom to people. It's this proclamation because that's what kings do, right? They proclaim things. They declare and decree certain things. But they just don't talk, right? They expect action. They expect not just words. That's where you start. But the last half of that verse, the actions are the realizations of what? Sight to the blind. And the rights, if you will, if you look closely, to set at liberty. It is the, the realization of those liberties in real time and real life. It's not just, hey, you have these. I'm declaring these, but now you get to act on them. And what is all of that when you don't have those? When you don't have liberty, when you don't have sight, 
when you are oppressed, when you are poor, I would argue those are all less than what God has in mind. And that's the idea with this notion of loss. There's something missing, in other words. There's something not right, and it has to be restored. And that's what Jesus has set out to do. And when you talk about it in terms of our emotional well-being, particularly when it comes to grieving, we have this tendency to think of one particular area of what that means. And I want to just maybe open up our minds a little bit more to what that looks like across a life. That you and I will experience loss and grief. So here's the first key you have to, to understand as far as our humanness. You and I have limits. We are limited in just about everything we are. We are mortal because of Adam's sin. And so God has placed the restriction on us as far as limits go. We cannot do or be anything you want to be. And to say otherwise would be just a flat out lie. God has limited all of us. Even the most gifted of us have limits. And what would the point of that be? Well, ultimately, in ultimate terms, I believe, those limits are to drive you to the realization of your desperate need of who and what Christ is. That you don't have it all. And that there is one who does. Jesus kind of drives that point home in John chapter 15, when he says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. But then most of you think, well, well, I drove here today. That's something. <laughs> right? And we, we think about it in those terms. Well, yes, we can do things, but we don't have ultimate things. He does. The Latin word for humility is humus. Dirt. Seems rather fitting, doesn't it? Not hummus. Hummus is good. Well, for some of you, right? Some are like, no, chickpeas, no thanks. But humus, that's the root word of, of humility, which is so fitting because of who and what means in which God used to make human beings out of the dust of the ground, right? And, and by nature, it has to do with humility. And being limited in our human nature is what behind is behind our loss. And when we experience loss... We grieve. There's this emotionality about us that we, we have to grieve. Because in our heart, we know it's not, it's, it's, there's something missing. And when we interpret loss of life apart from God, we see loss as this invading army, if you will, bent on ending what we think are normal lives. And when we feel those emotions physically, even spiritually, it's usually pain that follows. Now, granted, loss is meant to be in degrees, depending on the type of loss. But especially in the higher forms of that, we can't handle the pain, so we have a tendency to look for relief. We deny. We'll blame. We'll rationalize. We'll move our life into I'll say addictions of some kind. It doesn't have to be the one that just popped into your mind. Avoidances. We'll search, in other words, for all kind of shortcuts in our life. Or we'll demand that someone fix it and just take it away because it hurts so much. And what's 
I guess the irony in some respects in some of those conversations that I have that people will actually feel those things, but then they'll turn around and deny the God that they don't believe in for the reason why they're suffering. <laughs> See, the question will be whether these deaths, if you will, these losses will crush your spirit or bring new life out of those possibilities because of what Christ has done. As we grow and mature in his likeness, See, we can clearly see, I think, from our text what is lost. There's poverty, there's captivity, there's blindness, there's oppression, and there's an unfavoredness. All of those, if you flip those terms that Luke's using in his scripture, those are all losses of some kind. And Jesus specifically came to seek and to save what was lost. And so from our text that was fulfilled so long ago, The poor can now be rich. The captives are let go. The blind can see. The oppressed are set free. And you and I can have favor in Christ and in Christ alone. That's the framework that grief and loss need to be hemmed in with. To have any semblance of hope, I believe. Here's the second key. It's this. Every one of us has losses. Right? Therefore, you will grieve about those losses. Jonathan Edwards, in one of his sermons, um, when he talked, uh, did some sermons on the book of Job, noted that Job's story is the story of us all. And Job's losses specifically are unimaginable, if you will. And what makes them unimaginable when you read the book of Job is you have the distinct benefit of going to the end of the book to go, it wasn't Job's fault at all. But can you imagine being in it in the moment? that You can't see forward. All you can see is in that moment in the past and what he had to deal with. And even understanding that we think in those terms it's no fault, even saying that really to me points out our sinful fallenness that we look to find fault. Once again, it's not me. It's everything else around me. It's somebody else, something else. It's not me at all. Job lost everything save his own life and the wife and the life of his wife. If you would look to Job, if you've read Job, or it's, a, it's a rather lengthy uh, story and book, particularly in the middle when the, all the dialogue's taking place with his three friends. But by our day's reckoning, he would be the wealthiest person in the world. That's the idea. And in one day he lost it all. In Job chapter 1 and 2. He lost his wealth. And probably more importantly, I'm quite certain to him, he lost all ten of his children. He lost his health after that. And again, this is I'll just point this out, we find... In scripture, this principle of greater to lesser. Why is that important? Because most of us will not experience our losses like that. And aren't you thankful? And this is why I believe it's in scripture to begin with, is because Job lost it all in a magnitude that is so uncomprehended. We'll experience those losses, but we'll experience all of that, and in other words, in a lesser form over the course of your lifetime, not in a week. It truly is unfathomable to me 
We will experience those losses over the course of our lives until we ourselves come to death's door and step over its threshold, leaving everything here in this life, all of our attachments to this world, even the very physical body you are carrying with yourself today. And unless we understand and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, what hope do you have? But loss. We lose our youthfulness, do we not? So we're like, oh yeah, yes, yes we do. <laughs> it hurts. Yep, we do. You can diet and exercise, which are amazing and wonderful for your body. Those are good things. But you cannot stop the process of getting older. We lose our dreams. Those are some losses that we experience, and we grieve over those. <clears throat> My career of playing for the Tigers was like that fast of a dream. <laughs> One summer playing ball was amazing, traveling all over the, well, not all over the country, but within a five-state radius of here, and then it was done. Started and was over just that fast. But you have to wrestle with those things, do you not? Maybe it's a career for you. Maybe it's a marriage or the children that you would hope for. Or as your children grow up, you realize as a parent they be, need less and less of your parental power and recognize that it has to diminish, and it's a healthy thing to diminish because you don't want them in your basement at, you know, my age, right? They have to learn. <laughs> Sorry, bad thought. Good thought, but bad thought. As your parents age, you experience the role reversal. Extremely strange thing to me. We lose routines, we lose stability, we lose all kinds of things. There's losses all over our life. We experience true loss of, of, I'll say, biblical proportions as those losses in degrees ramp up the life of a friend who maybe commits suicide or the spouse who has an affair or the singleness after a breakup or a divorce. Those are all horrific losses. The doctor says it's cancer. The company you've worked for for 25 years no longer needs you. Loyal friends betray. There's infertility. There's miscarriages. There's broken friendships. There's abuse of money. There's just abuse. And we lose our illusions about the perfect family we realize we're broken. And when you live long enough, you will experience more than once probably the greatest loss that we experienced where most of us went to when we, I mentioned this earlier, is that someone we truly love dies. And it hurts. Beyond words. Job was a godly man Scripture says in Job 1 that he was the greatest man in all the East. Again, this, this larger-than-life personality, and he lost it all, all at once. And yet he neither sinned nor blamed God, Scripture says, but instead he did this remarkable thing. He worshipped. And that just seems to be a hard thing for me to wrap my mind around after the loss, especially ten children having ten funerals, bearing your own children. And then to add even more to his pain, as he was severely afflicted, now he's physically afflicted from his head to his feet. And the result of both of those things, 
fevers, aches, this boils that he had, the oozingness that takes place. When you pause and think, okay, what does that mean? Because we read over this stuff so fast. The effect that it would have had on him and all his loss. And finally you get to where Mrs. Job comes to him and says, look, are you still maintaining your integrity? Just curse God and die. Just be done. Let me ask you, how might you have dealt with such imaginable, unimaginable loss? How might you have grieved if you were Job or one of his friends? How do you get out of the pain when, like Job, your world comes crashing down all around you? And how do you gain and grow in emotional, spiritual healthy, healthiness? Even and Is that even possible? Or are you stuck? See, to the mature in our spiritual life, to mature to adulthood requires us to grow through immature responses, if you will, of our own, I guess, self-preservation mechanisms that we have. Or as Jesus put it, he says, you really need to learn to die to yourself. To be willing to look at the truth and Christ being at the, at the center of that as we talk about. And so growth comes through this hard work, through suffering, through pain. What are some of those examples? Well, how we respond to that. What are some man-centered examples? Well, we deny it. We make light of it. Oh, I'm hurt, but I'm fine. No, really, I'm okay. We'll, we'll ask, hi, how the weather questions. How are you? Good, fine, right? We, won't, we don't want to deal with it. We minimize it, in other words. We admit the pain, but then turn around and try to explain it away sometimes. We'll blame others. We blame ourselves. We'll rationalize things. We'll intellectualize things with endless theories and analysis and, and speak in generalities and, and not really get to the issue. Distractions are also a, a good one. To do anything to change the subject, don't even think about it. Do something, keep myself busy. Sometimes we'll be angry and irritable. We'll get hostile through that. But how do you deal with it God's way? How do you deal with loss God's way? I want to give you just a handful of means in which we can do that. And through Job's example, Job's really the, the best model we have. So here's something I want to encourage you in as best I can. Because I know, again, this affects all of you. It affects all of us. It affects me because we all loss. We all have loss. And the response is to grieve. But scripture makes this definition to say, hey, you, you don't grieve as one who is without what? Hope. So here's the first one. You have to notice it. You have to pay attention to your emotion. Don't explain it away. Don't pretend it doesn't exist. Don't pretend it doesn't hurt. Just notice it. Sadly, in my life, there has been little discipleship or theology for the anger I feel. The deep sadness. The wading through it. The depression and anxiety that comes. Usually when you think of anger, oh, it's just always bad. So stay clear of it. But I see in Scripture God getting angry. We're told in our anger, don't sin because 
when you do, that's a beachhead, if you will, from which the devil can launch his temptations into your life. That comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Job shouted at God. God's poison arrows are in me. He marshals his tears against me. That's chapter 3 and chapter 6, if you'd like to read it this afternoon. He's angry. Jesus wept over Lazarus and cried out over the grief he saw as he's entering Jerusalem because he knew what was to come. God was grieved in Genesis for creating humanity and the sin that they just desirously wanted in their life as opposed to desiring him. David wrote a lament over the death of Saul and his best friend Jonathan as they were killed in a battle. And Jeremiah wrote a whole book called Lamentations, Lament. See, we bristle and are uncomfortable. We're confused when we approach with clarity to notice our emotions. It scares us sometimes. So we hold it in, we stuff it, we bury it, we don't confess it before a neighbor, a friend, or certainly before God. But listen, you and I have limits. And those limits are the capacity or the vault in your life of how much emotion and grief you can hold. And there is a limit to it. And you can't keep pouring it in there because at some point it's going to leak out. And inevitably when it does, that's when our emotions, we feel free to those that are close to us just to dump all over them and hurt. Because the pain has to go somewhere. It's not meant for you to be kept inside in that little vault in your life. It has to go somewhere. And where it desires to go, where God would have it to go is to Him. So here's the second one. Number two is to wait in the confusing in between when all your emotions are all stirred up and you don't know what to do or where to go, what even to say. We in our society are notoriously bad at waiting, are we not? (laughs) Truly. Psalms 37, 7 says, really, be still before the Lord and wait for him patiently. I'm glad it doesn't say, just say wait for him, because then I would fill in the blank, because patiently would not be the word I would use. (laughs) I'll wait, but I'll stomp my feet, throw a hissy fit, and roll around. And that was my, you know, my way of doing things as a kid, apparently. What's patient? Job waited years. Again, we we, we don't process this, I don't think, very well in Scripture. At least I don't. I say we because it's safe, but I don't sometimes. How long does it have to take, you know, think, think about the process of, of losing 10 kids and then, then God blessing at the end 10, 10 more kids and the time it takes to do that, right? But we read it, it's like, oh, instantly. Nope, it wasn't instant. It was years. The time it takes to build his family back, the time and work he put into building his business back, not to men, mention dealing with three friends who kept berating him for the suffering he was having because they were convinced 
Job, you're, you're hiding some sin in your life. You need to just come clean and this will all go away. You reap what you sow, Job. God's punishing you in all of that. Job was the innocent sufferer in this case. And I'm not talking about him not being a sinner in need of God's grace. He was that. But the consequence of what he was doing. In the waiting, it's confusing because there's uncertainty. We don't know where to go or what to do. It's this in-between of, of what I just experienced and where I want to be and, and, and to get it over with. And, and we're, we're dealing with this, all these emotions that we have and all the, the things that run through our mind. And it's so quick and easy to define those things, the, to resist the temptation. Just I just want it fixed. God, do something. Or other side of it, to try to defend God of why it's happening. That's what his friends were, were trying to do. Or to find some quick, superficial sitcom solution so it just goes away. When we are called to wait. Here's another one. As you notice the emotions as you wait, it's to embrace the gift of the limits that you've been given. Embrace them because you have them. I'll state an obvious one. The limits that you have is your physical body, is it not? I don't do the things I used to do. I physically can't anymore. I can't run like I used to, not like I was fast. (laughs) But just the fact of running and playing and doing sports after hanging out with high school students for so many years. And if I'd have just not played ultimate frisbee that day, I'd have been fine. (laughs) But when you hear... I didn't know your muscles when they pop, when you blow your hamstrings like that, that the noise inside your head is so extremely loud. (laughs) I never knew that. Or it was when I hit the dirt face first because my my legs weren't functioning. (laughs) But our physical bodies are limitations. God made us from dust and we're going to return to it. You have to eat, drink, and sleep just to function in life. You're aging. You're coming to your own end. And again, you will finish your life's race by taking nothing with you, not even your physical body. You have to embrace the limits of your family. It's your origins, where you came from, the culture in which you were born in, which you have no control over, the mom and dad that you had, whether you were adopted or not. All of those things have limits. Your If you're married or single or not, both of those, the seasons of life, have limits. Particularly for God's optimum and you're flourishing your life. Whether you have children or not, your intellect, no one is a genius in every category and knows everything. In literature, in math, in science, in all those things, the gifts and talents that you have, your the wealth that you have, your personality, the time that you have, there's all limits to it all. Genesis 3 reminds you and me that there will be thorns and thistles, your life. Your to-do list will never be completed. Your spiritual understanding, God holds the secret things. He knows it all, Deuteronomy 29. 
He's revealed himself in his word enough so that you and I would know him. He has determined what was enough for you and I to know, to be saved, to live holy lives. You and I were created to worship him. And it will take all of really eternity for us to know him fully. Which is, again, for like, it's like saying in, to infinity and beyond, right? That's what that's like. You have to learn to embrace your limits. You have to come to terms and the understanding that you and I are not the center of the universe. A really good example, I think, is if you've been around a baby, what do they think? Man, they are the center. And the moment they're hungry, they will let you know they are. Because <laughs> that's their mechanism. Feed me! And all they do is scream. They only do a couple things well, and that's one of them. I'll forego the other one. <laughs> but that's what they do. And what do you do as a parent? <laughs> And rightfully so. But maturity requires, and particularly in our spiritual maturity, for you and I to understand that that is not where you stay. This world, in other words, does not here to meet your every need. For some of us to work through that, we push harder. We just have to do more. Believing again that you have the capacity to do so, that you'll not burn out, that you'll not get stressed out. And when all of that doesn't work, again, we have this tendency to blame somebody else for it not working. And for some of you who have that high capacity, you throw up your hands in frustration by the rest of us don't. And it bothers you. Or you'll just seem, it's just useless, so why try? See, all of those are the babies screaming and yelling because you and I are meant to grieve as people who don't grieve without hope. Here's the fourth one. And this is interesting because this comes from St. Benedict. This is climbing the ladder of humility. Again, a paradox. To climb the ladder of humility. If there was anyone who lived with grief and loss who would have felt they had the right for anger, for revenge, for all of those things, it would have been Job. Because it was no fault of his own. But instead, he forgave his friends, he prayed for them, and he worshiped God. Job made this humble choice to, in other words, climb the ladder of humility. Jesus gives those qualities to us in humility, what that looks like. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, you see it again in Luke, in this chapter, Luke 14, at the beginning of this chapter, and also in Luke 18. What that looks like in life, what it's supposed to, to mean to you and to me as we move this up, up, up the ladder of maturity and humility. I have a little graphic from St. Benedict. That's where this came from. I don't know if you can read that or not. But I thought it was very interesting, the means and method in which you and I come to a mature life of humility and what that looks like and how we mature and grow in it what's the first one fear god that's where everything starts where it all begins and as you work through some of these things this is not scripture but it's a category of and it seems to be very helpful in our understanding of what that means to work through loss and grief 
is to be humble in it. Here's the last one. Let me close with this. To hope in God. In grief and loss. Good, godly, mature grieving through our loss is not just about letting go of something or someone that's been taken from you. Something that you feel was stolen. But the hope comes in is when that happens, and it will, is will it be a blessing to you? Oh, not right away. This is part of the process. Again, it doesn't go from, I'm, I'm in pain and I just want it to go away. This is the process. It's, in other words, a hope in letting what was old, I'll say, birth something new in the loss that you feel. Out of the ashes, right? We sing that song, Beauty Out of Ashes. Did I say that right? Beauty from Ashes. It's that. It's that recognition. Why are you so downcast, oh my soul, hope in God? Why is that so hard? Because you and I have to wrestle that there is this finality to our losses. It is a door that is shut and you and I don't have the mechanism to open it back up as much as you emotionally want it back. There is no means for you to get it back. And as much as we desire it, we want it to be what we long for, we just have no means for it to happen. And Job understood that. And when we pay attention and we wait in the confusing in-between and all of our emotions being stirred up and to let them and trust the Lord to work through that, when we embrace this gift to recognize that I am limited in the capacity that I have to do that, when I need to be humble through it all, we will find the blessing of God in his time. And just like our text at the very beginning, the king has proclaimed good news. And in that section, in that turmoil of blindness and poorness and oppression and all those things that we feel in this life, he will bring blessing. And if that doesn't happen, in your life, my life, in general, we become some of the most bitter people possible in the scope of those losses. Grumbling and plating because I didn't get the promotion or whatever. See, God blessed Job in his time by restoring his wealth by two. God gave him ten more children and the grandchildren that came, and he lived a long life, Job 42 says. And as much as God's favor was on Job, I believe that when he was alone, when he had his wealth times two back, all the crops, all the sheep, all the land, all the goats, all the camels, all the silver, all the gold, when he walked out down the street or in the field, I can't help but think that he traded all. For what he lost. But knowing the only means he has to get it back is to know Christ. It's the same gospel. Job needed the same gospel that you and I do. See, Job didn't stop there. 
as he's standing out there watching the sunset, he didn't let his mind and thinking stay there because he knew the Lord. Because he knew firsthand what it meant to have the good news proclaimed to him, a poor man. And the light of that grace, the, the favor that would come for him and his family. In the middle of all that, in the middle of his, the destruction of his life, in the middle of being a prisoner, in the middle of being blind, all of those things, a slave and needing freedom, he understood where God was. That God is not obliged to give him what he needed. That somehow God was there to, to make sure none of these things happened. See, God has done everything he can in the good news of Jesus Christ to bring hope to you through your suffering. That through the suffering and death in Christ, it's the only way to receive the resurrection of life. It is the only way. There is no other name whereby you must be saved. And therefore, if there is a death, there is a resurrection. Job's physical life, that expression of the spiritual truth, is the reality of that. And you get to read it and to, and, and to take a deep breath as you dive into that. What grief looks like when you lose things. Ultimately, losing someone you love to death. The ultimate loss that we will experience in this life. Jesus made this abundantly clear. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only one seed. But if it dies, it'll produce a harvest. See, that's the realization that you and I have to understand. That even in the loss, even when I don't understand it, even when I can't wrap my mind around it, that in all of those things, into Christ, God is sovereign and making this work. And I don't have the answer. I don't have it all figured out. I can't see it all. But one of the greatest blessings in all those losses I believe we will encounter in this life is that when we move from a man-centered theology thinking God owes us, that he owes us whatever it is, you fill in the blank. Or that God is supposed to be doing this for me or here for me in that sense. Or God gets us. When we move from that to when we keep him at the center and realize how desperate we are without him. When your prayers move from bless me, give me, just give me what I need, to I just need you and will trust you for what I need. See, loss and grief is not forgetting or pretending the pain isn't real. It's very real. But it's knowing God is over both of those, life and death, and that he is walking with you. That he will never leave you or forsake you. Why, oh my soul, are you so downcast? Hope in God. Heavenly Father, thank you. For even considering blessing us. The means in which you reveal your glory, that you are so jealous of the means in which it took to glorify yourself through Jesus Christ on the cross to experience the ultimate grief and loss of your own son the magnitude that we as your creation 
get a taste of, but still will never fully understand. The means in which it took to glorify you and the benefit of that glorification is the saving of those you have called to yourself. So Father, I know there are many here who have experienced the ultimate loss, the loss of someone they've loved. And for some, it have been not that long ago. For others, it's a lifetime, but it still remains. So Father, I ask that you would strengthen our hearts and minds, that we would look to you in those moments that, of, of loss that we feel and experience in this life. That we would have, and that this church family would be a blessing in those moments to come alongside, to grieve together, to laugh together. In the variety of spectrums of losses that we feel in our own lives, to be able to express those, to be able to empty the emotional box of our heart and mind and humbly bring it to you and allow you to fill us up the only one that can satisfy even when the tears are flowing even when that's all we can taste is to know Christ in his name I pray